San Francisco in the Roaring Twenties is a city that hasn't quite shaken her old self. Scratch the surface of civilization and out pumps the hot, chaotic blood of her Barbary Coast days. Sometimes somebody needs help bringing order back to this chaos, and that's where I come in. I work for the Federated Detective Agency. Sixty-three Audio presents Adventures of the Federated Tech, created by Pete Lutz and Mark Slade, and dramatized from stories by Dashiell Hammett. This time, a high-speed car chase and a gun battle lead me to a shocking discovery and the solution to a handful of unsolved murders. Tonight's story, The Girl with the Silver Eyes, Part 2, adapted for audio by Pete Lutz. Our story so far. In part one, we met young Burke Pangborn, a poet of some modest distinction and brother-in-law to R.F. Axford, one of the most successful businessmen in San Francisco. Pangborn has hired the tech to find the girl he loves, Jean Delano, who seems to have disappeared without a trace after telling the poet she had to go to Baltimore suddenly. Then, after Axford discovers a forged check for $20,000, Burke Pangborn himself disappears but is spotted at a down-coast roadhouse run by a well-known bootlegger, Tin Star Joplin. By the time we reached the end of part one, the tech had sent his snitch, Porky Grout, over to the White Shack and, on a tip from his office, decided to head over to the Marquis Hotel to see if there was any connection between that establishment and Joplin's roadhouse. The girl on duty at the Marquis Hotel switchboard was one I'd done business with before. Well, hi there. How's tricks? Is everybody using that phrase these days? Huh? Never mind. Who's been calling Half Moon Bay numbers? My God. <laughs> Don't I got enough to do without remembering every call that goes through? This ain't a boarding house, Mac. We have more than one call a week. But I'll bet you don't have many Half Moon Bay calls. You ought to remember any you've had lately. I'll make it worth your while. Aha. Buddy? For a five spot? I'll be able to remember Alexander Graham Bell calling Half Moon Bay. <laughs> Hold on a sec. Here's one from room 522, a couple of weeks ago. What number was called? Half Moon Bay 51. That's it. Here you go. Is 522 a permanent guest? Yes, uh, Mr. Kilcourse. He's been here three or four months. What is he? I don't know. A perfect gentleman, if you ask me. That's nice. What does he look like? Tall and elegant. Be yourself, huh? What does he look like? He's a young man, but his hair is turning gray. He's dark and handsome. Looks like a movie actor. Lon Chaney? Oh, you're hilarious. <laughs> the key to 522 was in its place in the rack. Perhaps an hour later, a clerk gave it to a man who did look somewhat like an actor. He was a man of 30 or so with dark skin and dark hair that showed gray around the ears. He stood a good six feet of fashionably dressed slenderness. He disappeared into an elevator. Hi, Nina, it's me. Is Dick Foley around? Thanks. Dick, hello, can you come around to the Marquis Hotel? Thanks. I'll be in the lobby. 
Dick Foley is a little shrimp of a Canadian. There isn't 110 pounds of him, and he's the smoothest shadow I've ever seen, and I've seen most of them. He arrived about 10 minutes later. Hey, what's up? I have a bird in here I want tailed. His name is Kilcourse, and he's in room 522. Stick around outside, and I'll give you the spot on him. Okie doke. If you need to reach me, I'm heading home after I give you the signal. Porky Grout may try to phone me later on. Fine by me. At 8 o'clock, Kilcourse came down and left the hotel. I nodded him over to Dick and went home, but no call came from Porky that night. When I arrived at the agency next morning, Dick was waiting for me. What luck shadowing Kilcourse? Damnedest. The little Canadian talks like a telegram when his peace of mind is disturbed, and just now he was decidedly peevish. Uh, took me two blocks. Shook me. Only taxi in sight. Think he made you? Nope. Wise head. Playing safe. Try him again, then. Better have a car handy in case he tries the same trick again. Aye, aye. Good luck. Yeah? Oh, hello, Porky. Turn up anything? Good. Are you in town? I'll meet you in my rooms in 20 minutes. I knocked it over for you, kid. Nothing to it for me. I went down there and talked to everybody that knows anything, seen everything that was to see, and put the X-ray on the whole dump. I made it... Uh-huh. Congratulations and so forth. But just what did you turn up? Now, let me tell you, don't crowd me. I'll give you all the dope. Sure, I know. You're great, and I'm so lucky to have you knock off my jobs for me and all that. But is Pangburn down there? Yes, I seen him. Fine. Now, what did you see? He's camping down there with Tin Star Joplin. Him and the broad that you gave me the picture of are both there. She's been there a month. I didn't see her, but one of the waiters, a guy they call Roach, told me about her. I seen Pangburn myself. They don't show themselves much. They stick back in Tin Star's part of the joint where he lives most of the time. Pangburn's been there since Sunday. I went down there and... Learn who the girl is or anything about what they're up to? No, I went down there and... All right, went down there again tonight. Call me up as soon as you know positively Pangburn is there, that he hasn't gone out. Don't make any mistakes. I don't want to come down there and scare them up on a false alarm. I gotta have more dough. It costs plenty to... I'll file your application. Now beat it and let me hear from you tonight, the minute you're sure Pangburn is there. I think I have a line on Burke, Mr. Axford. I hope to have him where you can talk to him tonight. What do you want me to do in the meantime? Have a fast car standing by and be ready to start out for the white shack as soon as I get word to you. Righto. I'll be at home after 5.30. Phone me up as soon as you're ready to go, and I'll pick you up. At 9.30 that evening, I was sitting beside Axford on the front seat of a powerfully engined foreign car, and we were roaring down a road that led to Half Moon Bay. The White Shack is a large building, square built, made of imitation stone. It's set away back from the road and is approached by two curving driveways, which together make a semicircle whose diameter is the public road. We were still going at a fair clip when we turned into one end of the semicircular driveway and... Good Christ. God! What? What are they doing? Not sure. Normally there aren't this many people outside. The entertainment's indoors in a roadhouse. It looks like they're all standing around something. I'll get out and check. Excuse me. Excuse me, let me through, please. 
Excuse me. Away. Excuse me, thanks. What are you all looking at? Oh. A guy's got himself shot. Face down on the white gravel, a man sprawled. A thin man in dark clothes, and just above his collar where the head and neck join was a hole. I knelt to peer into his face. Then I pushed through the crowd again, back to where Axford was just getting out of the car, the engine of which was still running. Pangburn is dead. Shot. I'll go see. I watched Axford walk away until he vanished in the throng. Then I went winding through the outskirts of the throng, hunting for Porky Grout. I found him standing on the porch, leaning against a pillar. I passed where he could see me and went on around to the side of the building that afforded the most shadow. Porky joined me a moment later. The night wasn't cool, but his teeth were chattering. Who got him? I don't know. Congratulations, Porky. This is the very first time I've ever heard you confess ignorance of anything. I was out there keeping an eye on the others. What others? Ten stars, some guy I'd never seen before, and abroad. I didn't think the kid was going out. He didn't have no hat on. What do you know about it? A little while after I phoned you, the girl in Pangborn came out from Joplin's part of the joint and sit down at a table outside in the back. And then this other guy comes over and sits down with him. I don't know his name, but I think I've seen him around town. He's a tall guy, all rung up in fancy rags. That would be Kilcourse. Is that his name? Well, they talk for a while, and then Joplin joins them. They sit around the table laughing and talking for maybe a quarter of an hour. Then Pangburn gets up and goes indoors. He ain't got no hat. I figure he ain't going nowhere. But he must have gone through the house and out the front, because pretty soon some guy comes in and squawks that there's a dead guy outside. Everybody runs out here, and it's Pangburn. You're dead sure that Joplin, Kilcourse, and the girl were all at the table when Pangburn was killed? Absolutely. Where are they now? Back in Joplin's hangout. They went up there as soon as they seen Pangburn had been croaked. I had no illusions about Porky. I know he was capable of selling me out and furnishing the poet's murderer with an alibi. But there was this about it. If Joplin, Kilcourse, or the girl had fixed the killer and had fixed my informant, then it was hopeless to try to prove that they weren't on the rear porch when the shot was fired. Joplin had a crowd of hangers-on who'd swear to anything he told them to without batting an eye. Thus, the only thing to do was to take it for granted that Porky was coming clean with me. I'm going up to talk to Joplin, Porky. You stick around where I can get a hold of you if I want you. Tin Star Joplin and I were old friends. I was going up now to give him and his friends a shakedown on the off chance that some good might come of it, though I knew that I had nothing on any of them. I could have tried something on the girl, of course, but not without advertising that the dead poet had forged his brother-in-law's signature to a check, and that was a no-go. Come in! You. What do you want? Tin Star Joplin was standing in the middle of the floor. Behind him, Tag Kilcourse sat, dangling one leg from the corner of a table. On the other side of the room, a girl I knew for Jean Delano sat on the arm of a big leather chair, and the poet hadn't exaggerated when he told me she was beautiful. What have you got, Tin Star? I say, Joplin, who the devil is this fellow? Ah, some sleuth from the city. What have I got? Listen, Gumshoe, what I ain't got is time to waste on stupid questions. If you'd saved up all the time different judges had given you, you'd have plenty. I couldn't keep up this banter. 
I was distracted by this girl. There was something familiar, but I couldn't place her. She was slender, with a mass of dark brown hair above an oval face, the color that pink ought to be. Her eyes were wide-set and of a gray shade that wasn't altogether unlike the shadows on polished silver that the poet had compared them to. I studied the girl, and she looked back at me with level eyes, and still I couldn't place her. Will you stop gandering at the girl and tell me what you want? If you ask me, he's getting altogether too familiar with her. The girl smiled at Kilcorse's remark, a mocking smile that bared the edges of razor-sharp little animal teeth. And with that smile, I knew her. Her hair and skin had fooled me. The last time, the only time I'd seen her before, her face had been marble white and her hair had been short and the color of fire. She and an older woman and three men and I had played hide-and-seek one evening in a house on Turk Street over a matter of the murder of a bank messenger and the theft of $100,000 worth of Liberty Bonds. Three of her four accomplices had died that evening, and the fourth, the Chinese, had eventually gone to the gallows at Folsom Prison. Her name had been Elvira then, and since her escape from the house that night, we had been fruitlessly hunting her from border to border and beyond. Recognition must have shown in my eyes, for she quickly left the arm of the chair and was coming forward, her eyes now more like steel than silver. I put my gun in sight. Hey, what's the idea? I say, old man. Everybody just stay put. This is the idea. I want the girl for a murder a couple of months back, and maybe, I'm not sure, for tonight's. Anyway, I'm... Hey! Who doused the lights? As soon as the room went black, I moved, not caring where I went, so long as I got away from where I'd been when the lights went out. My back touched a wall, and I stopped, crouching low. Quick, Keith, this way. When I heard the unmistakable sound of a spring knife, I remembered that Tin Star Joplin had a fondness for that weapon. I then heard sounds of motion, muffled, indistinguishable. Let's go. Through here. Let's go. Abruptly, a strong hand clamped onto one of my shoulders. I stabbed out with my gun and... You'll be sorry for that, chum. The hand moved up my shoulder toward my throat. I snapped up a knee and heard another. See how you like this. A burning point ran down my side. I stabbed out again with my gun, pulled it back, and squeezed the trigger. Ah! God damn. That got me. Ah. I spun away from him then, toward where I saw the dim yellow of an open door. Joplin must have tied into me as a distraction while the others made their getaway. Nobody was in sight as I jumped, slid, tumbled down the steps, any number at a time. A waiter got in my path as I plunged toward the dance floor, intentional or not, I didn't ask, and I slammed the flat of my gun in his face and went on. Once, I jumped a leg that came out to trip me, and at the outer door, I had to smear another face. Then I was out in the semicircular driveway, from one end of which a red taillight was turning east onto the county road. I didn't see Axford, and Pangburn's body had been removed. A few people gaped at me as I sprinted for the powerful car that had brought me to this place. A mile and a half, or maybe two, and then... Porky, what are you doing? Get out of the road! Porky! The headlights caught Porky Grout, standing facing me in the middle of the road, a dull automatic in each hand. The windshield fell apart around me. I couldn't believe my eyes. Porky Grout, the informant whose name was a synonym for cowardice, the full length of the Pacific coast, stood in the center of the road, shooting at a metal comet that rushed down upon him. 
I confess frankly that I shut my eyes when his face showed close over my radiator. The metal monster under me trembled, not very much, and the road ahead was empty except for the fleeing red light. My windshield was gone. The wind tore at my uncovered hair and brought tears to my squinted up eyes. That was Porky. I can't believe it. I expected him to double cross me. And am I surprised that he sneaked up the stairs and switched off the lights? I am not. But for him to have stood straight up and died. Well, they've noticed me back here chasing them. Not much chance of being hit from this distance, but at this pace, it won't be long before I'll put the searchlight on. I'm still too far off to reach the car ahead, but at least I can see that the girl is driving and kill course is screwed around toward me. I'd better ease up a little. I can't drive and shoot at the same time. Maybe I can keep my distance until we reach a town. It's not quite midnight yet and people will be on the street and cops. I'll have a better chance that way. The yellow roadster slowed down up ahead. My prey had tumbled to my plan. The car wavered and came to rest with its length across the road. Kilcourse and the girl were out of the car immediately, crouching on the far side of their barricade. I'd been crouching down in the car, waiting for the one bullet that would kill my searchlight, and as I waited, I slipped out of my overcoat and took off my shoes. I switched off the other lights and jumped to the road. While their eyes were readjusting to the sudden darkness, I ran across noiselessly in stockinged feet from my machine to theirs. I heard Kilcourse from near the radiator of the roadster. I'm going to try to knock him off from over in the ditch. Take a shot at him now and then to keep him busy. But I can't see him. Your eyes will be all right in a second. Take a shot at the car anyway. Kilcourse, on hands and knees, was working his way toward the ditch that ran along the south side of the road. He didn't make it. Uh, uh. I didn't look to see whether I'd hit him or not. At that range, there was little likelihood of missing. I bent double and slipped back to the rear of the roadster, keeping on my side of it, and waited. The girl moved around the rear of the roadster so that she could ambush me from the side nearest Axford's car. Thus it was that she came creeping around the corner and poked her delicately chiseled nose plunk into the muzzle of the gun that I held ready for her. Women aren't always reasonable. They are prone to disregard trifles like guns held upon them. So I grabbed her gun hand, which was fortunate for me. As my hand closed around the weapon, she pulled the trigger, catching a chunk of my forefinger between hammer and frame. I twisted the gun out of her hand and released my finger, but she wasn't done yet. With me standing there, holding a gun not four inches from her body, she turned and bolted off toward where a clump of trees made a jet black blot to the north. When I recovered from my surprise, I set out after her, tearing the soles of my feet at every step. She was trying to get over a wire fence when I caught her. Ow, you're hurting my arm. Stop playing, will you? This is a serious business. Don't be so childish. You are hurting my arm. Little girl, I'm barely holding on to you. Here you are, the direct cause of four, maybe five deaths, and you have the gall to complain? Come on, I need to shed some light on the subject. Ugh. Now stand here in the light and behave. The first break you make, I'm gonna shoot a leg out from under you. <laughs> here's kill course, and here's his gun. Looks like I got him in the throat. Is he? Yes. Oh, poor Tag. Yes, poor Tag, and poor Hook, and poor Ty, and poor Kid of an L.A. bank messenger, and poor Burke. 
That's the roll call, kid, of the men who have died loving you. I suppose you think... Come on. We'll leave Kilcourse and the Roadster here for the present. There's a blanket in the back. Better wrap it around your shoulders. Here. The windshield is gone. It'll be cool. She followed my instruction without a word, but after we had been heading east a ways, she laid a hand on my arm. Aren't we going back to the White Shack? No. Redwood City. The county jail. Will you stop for a minute? There's something... Some things I want to tell you. Before you start, I want you to understand that we stay here for just so long as you talk about the Pangburn affair. When you get off on any other line, then we finish our trip to Redwood City. Aren't you even interested in the Los Angeles affair? No, that's closed. You, Hook Riordan, Tai Chun Tao, and the Quars were equally responsible for the messenger's death, even if Hook did the actual killing. Hook and the Quars were killed the night we had our party in Turk Street. Ty was hanged last month. Now I've got you. We had enough evidence to swing the Chinese, and we've even more against you. That's done. Finished. Completed. If you want to tell me anything about Pangburn's death, I'll listen. Otherwise... I do want to tell you about it. I want you to know the truth about it. Don't think that I expect... that I have any foolish hopes. I don't know why I should care, especially what you think, but I'd like you to know the truth about the thing. She now began to talk very rapidly, as people talk when they fear interruptions before their stories are told, and she sat leaning slightly forward so that her beautiful oval face was very close to mine. After I ran out of the Turk house that night, my intention was to get away from San Francisco, but then I thought that going away was what you people would expect me to do, and that the safest thing would be to stay right here. I changed my appearance. It wasn't hard. I, I went from having bobbed red hair, pale skin, and bright clothes to one with long brown hair, color on my skin, and dark clothes. I, I took an apartment under the name Jean Delano, and I was an altogether different person. I passed the time. I, I read a great deal. That's how I happened to run across Burke's book. Do you read poetry? No. Burke wasn't a genius, of course, but there was something about some of his things that were something that got inside me. I, I wrote him a little note. Dear Mr. Pangburn, I'm writing to let you know how much I enjoyed your poetry. Sand patches and other verses is, is now permanently on my nightstand. And my dear Miss Delano, I can't tell you how pleased I was to receive your note and how interesting that we both live in San Francisco. Are there any other poets you enjoy? what today is, Bert? Wednesday? It's our anniversary. We've known each other exactly one month. <laughs> A month? Why, it feels like only yesterday. You've aged so gracefully, my dear. <laughs> and in all this time, I still know so little about you. Please don't ask me, darling. I've done some things I'm not proud of, and I don't want to spoil your love for me. That could never happen, my dearest. Why, you're a beautiful angel. Yes? May I help you? Don't play that game with me, Elvira. I saw you down on the street and saw through those drab duds you've got on. <laughs> you've really got them fooled, don't you? What do you want, Tag? I just wanted to say hello. Aren't you going to invite me in? 
can't believe my ears, kid. You're dropping out of life to marry some poet. He loves me, Tag. I, I don't know if I love him, but maybe his love for me will be enough. <laughs> I realized pretty soon that admitting this to Kilcourse was a mistake. If I told him that I was going to rib Burke up for a sucker, he would have left me alone. But once I admitted my desire to leave the life, Tag saw me as his meat. He found out about Burke's family connections, and then he put it up to me. $20,000 or he'd expose me. He knew about the L.A. job, and he knew how badly I was wanted by the law. I was up against it then. I, I knew I couldn't hide from Tag or run away from him. You've got to have how much? 20,000. I wouldn't ask if it wasn't for a very important reason. <sighs> All right, my love. I'll see what I can do. Three days later, he gave me a check for it. I didn't know at the time, nor did it matter to me how he'd raised it. I had to have the money. That night, he told me where he got it. That he'd forged his brother-in-law's signature. He was confident that his brother-in-law wouldn't send him over for forgery. But to be on the safe side, he insisted that I move and lay low until we knew how Axford was going to take it. After laying a false trail to Baltimore, Jean Delano said she went down to the White Shack and got Joplin to put her up. She let Kilcourse know she was there, and when he came down, she told him she expected to have the money for him in a day or two. Kilcourse himself was soon falling under the girl's spell, but her time was growing short. The day would come when Pangburn's letters would start coming back to him from Baltimore. Kilcourse was getting easier for her to handle, but not so much that he was willing to give up the 20 grand unless she promised to stick with him for good. And because she still thought she was in love with the poet, she didn't want to tie herself to Kilcourse even for a little while. Then Burke saw me on the street one Sunday night. I was careless and drove into the city in Joplin's Roadster, the one back there. I told him the whole truth, and he told me that he'd hired a private detective to find me. God, he was like a child in some ways. It hadn't occurred to him that the sleuth would dig up anything about the money, but I knew the forged check would be found in a day or two, so I brought him back here to Joplin's with me. It was just to be for a few days. And if the story broke in the papers, Burke and I would look for a more permanent arrangement. The story did break. The next day's papers were full of the news of his disappearance, but nothing was said about the check. That, of course, was pre-planned by Axford and me. We'd fed the newspapers the facts we wanted them to have. But while it looked good to the parties involved, the girl said, they wanted to wait another day for good measure. Kilcourse was in on the game by this time and she'd had to hand over the 20 Gs, but she continued to string him along in hopes of getting it back. She was having a hard time though, keeping Kilcourse off the poet, because by this time the crook had started to feel possessive about the girl. But she got 10 star to put a scare into him and Kilcourse backed off. She thought he was safe, but then tonight, Hey, Kinstar. What is it, Roach? There's a mug here tonight named a Grout. Porky is his front name. He's been talking to a lot of folks here tonight and has made a few hints like as he's interested in your friends here. Can you point him out to me, Roach? Sure, Mr. Lano. Take a gander over my right shoulder. He's at the bar. Thanks, Roach. Get lost. What are you going to do, kid? I'll go see if I can get close to this Mr. Porky Grout. Please be careful, Jean. Grout was a plain rat as I guess you know, and in less than five minutes I had him at my table, and half an hour after that I knew that he'd tipped you off about Burke and me hiding out in the white shack. The girl went right up and told the others. Kilcourse was for killing both Porky and Pangburn right away, but she talked him out of it. 
That wouldn't help them any, and she had Porky so primed, he'd jump in the ocean for her. The plan was for her and Pangburn to leave in the roadster and for Porky to point out some other couple to me, saying he thought they were the ones I'd wanted him to shadow. But when Burke went out to the car ahead of the girl, Kilcore shot him. I didn't know he was going to. Please believe that. I, I wasn't as much in love with Burke as I thought, but please believe that after all he'd done for me, I wouldn't have let them hurt him. <sighs> after that, it was a case of stick with the others, whether I liked it or not. So I stuck. We ribbed Grout to tell you the story he'd told you, and we had others primed to spill the same yarn. Then you came up and recognized me. Just my luck that it had to be you, the only detective in San Francisco who knew me. You know the rest. I... I... Her voice died and she shivered a little. The blanket she'd wrapped around herself had fallen away from her white shoulders. Whether or not it was because she was so close against my shoulder, I shivered too. And my fingers, fumbling in my pocket for a cigarette, brought it out twisted and mashed. <laughs> That's all there is to the part you promised to listen to. I wanted you to know. You're a hard man. But somehow... Now, don't be so crude, sister. Your work has been too smooth so far to be spoiled by rough stuff now. <laughs> Little fat detective whose name I don't know. You think I'm playing a part, don't you? You think I'm playing for liberty? Perhaps I am. I'd certainly take it if it was offered me. But, <laughs> oh, men have thought me beautiful and I've played with them. Men have loved me and doing what I liked with them, I have found men contemptible. And then comes you, this little fat detective whose name I don't know. And he acts as if I were an old hag. Can I help then being peeked into some sort of feeling for him? Am I so homely to you? Really? Am I ugly? Uh, you're quite pretty. Bastard! And yet... It is because of this attitude that I turn myself inside out for you. If you were to take me in your arms and tell me that there is no jail ahead for me just now, I would be glad, of course. But then you would only be one more notch on my belt, so to speak. But because you do none of these things, because you are a wooden block of a man, I find myself wanting you. Would I tell you this, little fat detective, if I were playing a game? <clears throat> I, I, I grunted noncommittally and forcibly restrained my tongue from running out to moisten my dry lips. I am going to this jail tonight, perhaps to the gallows. But before that, can't I have one wholehearted assurance that you think me a little more than quite pretty? Can't I take my vanity there, not quite in tatters, to keep me company?
I think you're beautiful as all hell. And that's how it happened, sir. I eventually got her to Redwood City, but after that <clears throat> confession of mine, it seemed to take an hour for me to start the car up again and get the car rolling to the San Mateo County Jail. Ah, to be young. <laughs> uh, did the lady say anything else on the way? No. She shifted over to the far end of the seat and huddled in the blanket I'd given her. I squinted straight ahead into the wind that tore at my hair and face, and the missing windshield reminded me of Porky Grout. Well, from what you've told me of Mr. Grout in the past, it hardly seems possible that she could exert such an influence upon him. I know. Picture Porky Grout, whose streak of yellow was notorious from Seattle to San Diego, standing in the path of Axford's car with a pistol in each hand. She had done that to Porky, and he hadn't even been human. And yet he went grimly to his death that she might get away. Oh, it's a remarkable thing that she was able to find and spark some dim human characteristic in him. I, I guess you could put it that way. Uh, um, so we sped through a town. Oh, yes, uh, please continue. We sped through a town, causing pedestrians to scurry for safety, and then we were out in the country once more. At the foot of a long, shallow hill, I stopped the car again and turned toward the girl. Furthermore, you're a liar. Hangburn never put Axford's name on that check. He never knew anything about it. You got in with him because you knew his brother-in-law was a millionaire. You stole Pangburn's bank book. It wasn't in his room when we searched it and deposited the forged check to his credit, knowing that under the circumstances, the check wouldn't be questioned. Good morning, Mr. Pangburn. Miss? Good morning, my fine fellow. The next day, you took Pangburn into the bank, saying you were going to Something make a deposit. I do for you? You Mr. took him in like because with him standing there beside you, the check to which May his I? signature had been yes. forged wouldn't be questioned. Here. You knew that being a gentleman, he'd take pains not to see what you were depositing. He didn't tell me about the 20000 when he first hired me because he didn't know about it and had disappeared with you before I could tell him. You and your pal Kilcourse knew that if Pangburn disappeared, nobody would ever know that he hadn't forged that first check and nobody would ever suspect that the second one was phony. You were planning to kill him quietly, but when Porky tipped you off about me, you had to move quick, so you shot him down. That's the truth of it. I yelled all of this in her lovely face as she watched me with those remarkable gray eyes, but by the end of my tirade, they'd clouded a little, and a pucker of pain drew her brows together. I turned back to the wheel and put the car in motion again. Just before we swept into Redwood City, she put a hand on my forearm, held it there for a second, patted it twice, then returned her hand to her lap. We didn't look at each other while she was being booked. She gave her name as Jean Delano and refused to make a statement until she'd seen an attorney. It was all over in a few minutes. A very pleasant adventure. Is that all, then? No, there's one more thing. As she was being led away, she stopped yes, and asked if she might speak privately with me. In private? We went together to a far corner of the room. She put her mouth close to my ear so that her breath was warm again on my cheek as it had been in the car. You. Then she whispered the vilest epithet of which the English language is capable yourself. and walked out to her cell.
been listening to The Girl with the Silver Eyes, Part 2. Episode 6 of Season 2 of Adventures of the Federated Tech. Our cast consisted of the following players. Pete Lutz as the tech. Jerry Eliff as the hotel switchboard operator. Mark Kalita as Dick Foley and Tin Star Joplin. Rhiannon McAfee as Gene Delano. Jason D. Johnson as R.F. Axford. Jeff Moon as Tag Kilkoris. John Bell as Porky Grout. Frank Guglielmelli as the voice in the crowd and the bank teller. Ian Fettergreen as Broach. Dana Gonsalves as Burke Pangborn and Joe Stofko as the old man. The theme and some incidental music was composed and performed by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. The Girl with the Silver Eyes was written by Dashiell Hammett and was published in the June 1924 issue of Black Mass Magazine. Mixing and mastering were performed by Daniel French of Fishbonia Sound Design. This program was adapted by and produced under the supervision of Pete Lutz. This is Darren Rockold speaking. Please join us next time when the Federated Tech says... The late night killing of a local politician leads to some uncomfortable accusations that may or may not stand up in the harsh light of day. Be with us for our next episode, Women, Politics, and Murder, coming soon from 63 Audio. Yeah, 63 audio.